Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 6th, 2015. This is episode 1514 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's time for your calls, not monster trucks, but monster calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Also, if you do not have letters on your dial for whatever reason, 866-658-4465. You know what I think would be cool? I think it would be cool if somebody, because someone out there still has one. Someone out there still has a landline with a rotary phone. I want you to call in a question And tell me when you before you ask your question, Jack, this is so-and-so, and I've called in from a rotary phone. If you do that, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. Tell me you did it, and I'll look for your call. I think it would be awesome. And it'd be interesting to know how many people out there have never seen, pictures don't count, a rotary phone. I don't know why, but I'm in a nostalgic kick lately. Somebody thought they were going old school with video games yesterday and posted a picture of a Nintendo on uh, on uh, Facebook, it said, hey, like this if you remember what this is. And so I posted a picture on the TSP fan page of an Atari 2600 and said, who knows what this is, who had one, and what was your favorite game? And he got a ton of comments. One person said, that doesn't seem like much of a survival topic. It's not. It's not. Sometimes we just have fun. And I'll tell you what, though. I do think it is important that we allow the current generation's to actually realize that we were kids too, we played video games too, we had all these different technological marvels, and there's a lesson in the Atari game. I want to start out the show today with the lesson of the Atari game and understanding what is and what is not an investment. So I remember very clearly when Atari came out with the ultimate video game of the time, Pac-Man. Not Miss Pac-Man, no, no, no. Old school Pac-Man. It was like the height of heights of video games. It was the one every kid wanted, and the graphics were abysmal for the Atari compared to the uh, to the arcades. And I remember lobbying strongly with my parents to get Pac-Man on my birthday. And I remember why I had to push so hard. It was thirty nine bucks, thirty nine ninety five for Pac-Man, thirty nine ninety five for Pac-Man. Yeah, that would have been about 1983. 1983. Little index inflation lesson here. Use one of those uh, cool little inflation calculators to say what was $39 in 1983 in money in 2015. The answer is $93.83. So I was asking my parents to spend just short of a hundred bucks in buying power back then to buy me a video game cartridge of a game called Pac-Man so I could waste parts of my day playing this game on my little TV that had a knob that you turned. Remember those two? And they did, and I got the game, and I played the game, and I really liked the game, and what have you, and I got other games, and what have you. And But right now, if I were to go to eBay and look for a vintage Atari 2600, um, 
with like a shitload of video games, they can be found for $50 to $70, usually including Pac-Man, because everybody had Pac-Man. I guess the upshot would be, at least it still works. But now you can buy the system as, a, as an antique. Um, and tons of those games for less than the game actually itself cost back then. So that's not an investment. And we were wasteful children, too. That's part of being honest with the current generation so that they can understand the trials that they're going through. Well, it's part of life. Anyway, before we get into the main topic of today's show, let us go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one today, HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith Snow there will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and learn how to make cooking a life school skill. And if you don't think cooking's a prepper skill, you haven't been listening to the show very long because so much of what we worry about as preppers is food. Now, if like me, you'd ever lived on MREs for six months, you get creative as a cook really, really fast. But if we're going to grow all this great food, source local food, try to eat healthier, then we want the food to taste great. And we want to learn techniques over recipes. That's what you'll learn from Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Now, for your cooking, he's got great seasonings. He's got great uh, videos on YouTube that you can watch and learn how to cook stuff. He's got a great podcast. He's just awesome. Check him out today, HarvestEating.com. Remember, you can get a discount on all the stuff there if you go to the Survival Podcast Members Brigade and log in and get your discount code. That is, of course, if you remember. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals. I am a big believer in all things herbal for your health. I believe that when I'm achy, I go to things like turmeric. If I'm really kind of sore, I might use a product that has something like a valerian in it. That's just what I do. You have to make your own decisions here. I can't give you medical advice. But all I know is that in my experience, herbs have been much more gentle and safe, in my view, than pharmaceuticals, whether they're over-the-counter or not. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't value modern medicine. It just means that I try to turn to what's gentle and safest first. Western Botanicals can help you do that because if it's herbal and legal and available in the United States, they've got it. Uh, everything from whole herbs and different components to make your own preparations uh, to pre-prepared preparations for you. If you need some help, pick up the phone, give them their call, give them a call. They're real people that really care about you that will answer that phone and help you out. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com. They do have a premium membership. This is 50 bucks a year, and it gives you 25% off everything they sell, which is a lot if you use a lot of herbals like we do. How would you like that membership for free? Join my support brigade. They give it to you for free. That's how big a supporter of the show that they are. That's a $50 product for $0 by supporting me and joining my members brigade. That's just two of the discounts I have for you in there. There's over 60 companies. Jeff Lawton's PDC launches either today or tomorrow. I'm not sure. They got the Australian time thing going on. I got you guys a $100 discount to that. I just released that yesterday. Got a young man that I found out about from Diego, uh, Footer's podcast at Permaculture Voices that at his height, was making $2,000 a week growing microgreens inside and selling them to chefs. Microgreens. Two grand a week. $100,000 a year. He put it all together in a business plan, basically an e-book with all the stuff and all the lessons he's learned. He sells that for $64. Um, I think that's a hell of a deal. I think even if you don't want a microgreens business, to understand the way that business functions so that you can build your own, Totally worth it. 50% discount announced yesterday for members of the Support Brigade. $64 product for $32. 
That's the kind of value I bring to the MSB, so consider joining military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all of you qualify for dun 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 a discount. Email me before, not after you join Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSPC service discount in the subject line. Again, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie in the subject line, followed by the word service discount. Make sure it comes to my attention. I'll get back to you with that discount code. Okay, real quick, I want to tell you something. I got an email today from somebody very, very angry with me. I've emailed you two other times, and you haven't responded. Your customer service sucks. First email I saw from him. If you don't put TSPC in the subject line, I might not find you in the spam filter. And then the Internet does strange things sometimes. If you ever email and you do not hear back from me from something that is customer service oriented within 48 hours, just email me again. Don't get all upset. I'm not ignoring you. I don't do that. I have a business to run, and I'm damn good at it. That's why I've been doing it as long as I have. I don't like hearing from customers all upset like that, uh, and I do what I can to make them happy. When it's accusational, though, I get close sometimes to firing a customer. I'm just saying. I really do. I work my ass off for this audience And I do everything I can to help this audience. And when I am uh, attacked because of some failure of technology, uh, it bugs me. And people that want to be that way, just to be blunt, I don't need your business. I really don't. I know that sounds arrogant, but it's not. And that, before we get into your first calls today, is actually a lesson in business. And something I want to talk to you about as well that I see going on a lot in politics right now. Um, any business... That's a private company anywhere should be able to refuse to do business with anybody for any reason, the end, infinity. And what I'm seeing right now that's making me think about this is two sides of the coin both making ridiculous arguments and hurting their cause. I'm talking about things like this bakery that was asked to make a cake for a gay wedding and refused, and the, and the, the gay couple sues the company because they won't make the cake. And we have the religious right coming down saying we need to stop these gay sinners, right? And we have the, the, the gay community saying you have to serve us. And it sounds like the biggest bucket load of losers I've ever heard of in my life because we're ignoring the issue. I think if you're gay and you want to get married, get married. If you're in Texas, the state won't recognize you. I'm an ordained minister. Come see me. I'll marry you. I'll put my money where my mouth is. I don't care. It's not my business who you marry. It's that simple. I don't think the state belongs in the business of marriage. But it is right now, so it is what it is. Okay. But I think if you're a gay person, and I don't care if it's your wedding, I don't care what it is, and you want to do business with a company, and they go, we don't do business with gays. You should go, oh, oh, really? And I think there should be the gay boycott website. And, and all of the members of the gay community, and anybody that wants to support them, should be able to go, look at the list. These are all the companies... The crap on gay people and don't want their business. Then don't give them your money and don't work for them and give them your time and your talent. Deny them your money. Deny them your time and your talent. Don't force them to take your money. Don't be the guy. Shut up and take my money. Don't be that guy. And those of you on the religious right that want those businesses to have the right to refuse to do business with gay people and suffer the consequences thereof, you're completely right. But it doesn't need to be about gayness. Okay, It doesn't need to be about gayness. You know what it needs to be about? The right of any business to refuse to do business with anybody. But Jack, what if a restaurant puts up a sign that says no black people allowed like back in the 60s? You know what? Do it in 2015. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
And see how long it is before you put a new sign in your window going out of business. I believe that the market is the most honest force for humanity today. And that if we just let the market do the work, things would sort themselves out. Well, what if, what if Walmart says they don't want to do business with gay people? Let them. Do you think they would? Do you think they would really, do you? Do you? I don't think they would. I don't think they would. I don't think they want to not have money. I think they like money. I think they like money and they like more, please. I think they like having reasonable dividends to return to their shareholders and a nice stable stock price. I don't think they would do that. Okay? And what I'm saying, though, the other side of this is, is the, the gay community. You guys are blowing it. You're blowing it. And I'm on your side in this. I want you to have whatever you want in your life, and I don't want anybody to interfere with you. I really do. But when you demand that a business do business with you, instead of saying, you're a bigot, okay, well, fine, I didn't know that. Let me take my business elsewhere. You're playing into this trap. And sometimes I even wonder, sometimes I even wonder if it all is a trap. Because I think most of the gay people I've met in my life are reasonable, sensible people who don't want to do business with people that suck. So I almost wonder at times if the couple in, in general is nothing but a piece of propaganda being used by somebody that actually has an anti-gay agenda. I don't know. I do know this. If I walked up to a store and it said, we don't serve gay people, black people, Hispanic people, females, males, insert the the word of your choice in the blank, no matter what it was, I wouldn't go out and try to pass a law and make them. I would simply deny them my business. And I would suggest that others do the same. I think that's a much better solution because basically what we can see from the track record of our government is anything they touch, they screw up. We declared war on drugs. We have more drugs than any time in history. We declared war on poverty. We now have more poverty in America than just about any time in history. Maybe we should declare war on jobs and money and happiness and health. Maybe if we did that, we'd get somewhere if we're going to have the government do it. Or maybe, just maybe, we should let our citizenry make decisions for themselves. Because isn't this supposed to be not just the home of the brave, but the land of the free. And if I can't decide who I do business with, and you can't decide who you do business with, and the government insists on telling us who we must do business with, regardless of whether we're free and open-minded people or bigoted assholes, if we're told who we must serve, if we can no longer put the sign up that says, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone in our businesses, how free are we really? Anyway, with that, didn't know I was going to talk about all that today, but a lot of stuff's been coming at me from different directions and kind of bottles up and I need to let it out. So uh, let's move on to the history segment before we take first call today. 1514, a death census in Hispaniola. This is where all of the natives are dying, mostly I think because of diseases we've brought and uh, the state of labor and uh, slavery affairs in Hispaniola. Uh, cop cams and the news on Rialto. Uh, this is about Venice and the marketplace there, and uh, that's a good one too. You can read because I want to read the Church's White Elephant and the debt and the death of debt because this one should hit you right now today. 
Hanno, the white elephant, is given as a gift of new Pope Leo X from King Manuel of Portugal. It will become his favorite. Pope Leo is quite the connoisseur of fine living. His excessive spending and selling of offices and indulgences will make the list of Martin Luther's complaints. As Martin Luther attempts to reform the church, when Pope Leo dies, several banks will go out of business, which suggests that he will owe them some very large sums of money. My take by Alex Shrugged, as the old saying goes, when you owe a bank thousands, the bank owns you. When you owe the bank millions, you own the bank. I tried to explain to a fellow why government debt is different than personal debt. The difference is that with personal debt, when I die, the debt dies with me. With government debt, when I die, the debt rolls over to my children, grandchildren, and on into eternity. I can die, but the debt never does. I agree, and I want to tell you why it's even worse than that. One of the things that the big government idiots will tell you is, the national debt doesn't matter because we owe most of the money to ourselves. Okay, so we've incurred a debt on the backs of our children while using the debt to create obligations to our children. I'm not going to explain it anymore. If you need that explained, I'll say it once more. But if I have to explain that to you, I need you to stop the podcast and think about it. We've incurred a debt on top of the backs of our children, to create an obligation to those same children. And we don't have to worry about it, because we owe the money to ourselves. My take by Jack Spearco. with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hi, Jack. What do you think about using composting plants on a leach field? Uh, this is Matt from Iowa, 11 zone 4B. Um, I was wondering about using... Uh, plants for composting, like uh, silage corn or comfrey um, or anything else out there like that, on a leach field. Uh, previous question has been about uh, growing a garden on a leach field. Uh, just wondering what your thoughts were. Um, the area that, that I'm interested in doing is uh, loamy deep soils with full sun. Thank you. Yeah, this is one of the easiest questions I could be asked, so I'm going to keep it short. Go nuts. Grow whatever you want to compost into anything you want over your leach field and don't worry about it. The only worry I would have is any plant that would get roots deep enough to get into and interfere with the operation of the leach field. I, I, wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even give it a second thought. I would just do it. I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't care what anybody said. I wouldn't look it up on a website. I think anybody that would worry about anything is an idiot and they don't know what they're talking about. I really do. I think that, because here's how I feel. You can plant anything you want over a leach field, and I'll eat it, as long as it doesn't make contact with the ground. And I probably would still eat it, but there's enough of a potential risk during a heavy surge event that some of the contaminated water could flood up and out and get on it that you shouldn't. So you shouldn't grow lettuce on a leach field. Again, you probably could, but you shouldn't do it. But if you grew a tomato and it was staked up and that tomato never touched the ground, I'd eat it that fast. So would I then take comfrey off a leach field, compost it, and use it for fertilizer that fast? We worry way too much about nutrient cycles uh, that nature's figured out for a very, very, very long time. There are parts of the world where they put in sewer pipes and the people need fertility And they break open the sewer pipes to get the black water out. You know what that means. So they fertilize their crops with it. And it's not what I would do. 
But you don't have people dropping over dying every five minutes either. Again, that would be a dumb thing to do. That does create the potential for disease, especially with the way that some of the people do it in the third world. But I'm saying, if they can do that, not everybody dies. You can go comfrey on top of your leech field, use it to mulch your tomatoes, eat your tomatoes, and not even think about it twice. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Back from North Carolina. First time caller, long time listener, and I'm a millennial with uh, my AA confession out of the way. Just have a few uh, observations, thoughts, uh, see if you'd like to get your comments on it about my generation since it seems to be a hot topic as of late. A little background, I grew up in northern West Virginia, about an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh, go Steelers. And for those uh, not familiar with the area, we pretty much do two things. We dig coal and make steel. So this kind of brings me to my point. Um, Up until recently, I didn't even realize millennials had a problem. People from my region just seem to be doing just fine. We, we've, those of us have moved on are doing well. Those who stayed are doing well. So I often wonder if it's just a product of our environment. Kind of an example, my high school, we had a large vocational program. We called uh, these folks, myself included, the basement dwellers. Most of us that spent our time down there went on to technical two-year schools or went straight to the mills and the mines or non-natural gas. Myself, I went on to technical school and became an aircraft mechanic. Uh, the other percentage of my classmates from high school went on to colleges and are doing quite well themselves. So I would imagine the college percentage, uh, students attending college at my high school is very low in comparison to the natural average. But I would have to say the, the amount of us uh, that are very productive and earning a very good living is much higher than the natural average. So I often wonder, is this uh, a product of uh, the small town? Um, having teachers that knew that all of us weren't meant to go to college, wasn't really pushing it, never really had pressure to do it. And, you know, there was few other options out there for folks that college just is not their thing. So just kind of would like to get your thoughts. Uh, like, thank you and the TSP community. Do a great job. Thanks again. It's a very interesting call because, number one, I like calls when they make my points that I've been trying to make for me. And two, it gets us into an interesting philosophical situation. And three, it takes a financial analysis and an economic outlook analysis of the country, and it makes us take a different look at it. So let's start out with how it makes my point. I have said for a long time now that the problems in this millennial generation and net natives and even the generation Y, which is a generation of people that are a little bit older than this gentleman, but younger than me, because I'm the Generation X guy. I'm dead center to Generation X, the 30 and under crowd. That the problems there, this whole they don't appreciate the value of work, they don't want to work hard, blah, 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 all these things that people say about them, where it's true, it's not their fault. We made them. We created them. They're a direct product of their upbringing. They were taught to be weak in certain areas. They were taught to be soft in certain areas, etc. What I've said is it's impossible that it's their fault. Because they're the same human beings we always were. Biologically, they're the same human being that was the tough farm kid in South England in the 1600s. We have it physio physiologically devolved into weaker beings. That This is nonsense. But there's no reason that a kid born in, in, in 1995 should be any weaker of a human being than a kid born in 1955. 
And the fact that we have it proves that it's our fault. Well, this proves it even further. Because in the absence of everybody's special, in the absence of everybody should go to college, in the absence of all of the things that we've done to weaken this generation and to convince them that they're entitled, in the absence of that, they don't come out the same way. They come out like this guy. Out, working his ass off, building a future, didn't even know there was a problem. You know, it makes me think of myself when I found out about permaculture's per purple breeders. I didn't know. When I first heard out about permaculture, it's, it sounded a little hippy-yippy to me. But I didn't know. I did, well, if it grows food, I'm in. I'm in. You know, I want to know. So I, I find these old videos of Bill Mollison, the founder, talking like a badass warrior about fighting the system and building things up and all these different. And I start reading his writing about all these ways that we can be profitable uh, while doing things more responsibly. And I'm like, find Jeff Lawton, Greening the Desert, reach out to Jeff. He becomes a mentor to me remotely. And, oh, my God, this is the most wonderful thing in the world. And I meet Paul Wheaton, he goes, yeah, there's people that think the third ethic means you can take other people's copyrighted material and give it away. And I found this whole mess of people that make me almost not want to use the word permaculture. Because they don't want to be associated with that. I didn't know they were there. So a millennial here has the same experience. I didn't even know those people existed. And you know what? Thank the God of your choice for that. Seriously, young man. That's great. Because you don't need to know about somebody else's problems to correct your own or to not have your own. Now, here's another thing. West Virginia is not the metropolis of opportunity in the world, but the part this, this kid's from has a pretty good core of blue-collar and upper-end technical and a lot of opportunities that pay decent left. And it also probably has opportunities for the college grad. It has a good spectrum of opportunity. Because of that, and because of a relatively low population competing for those jobs, that opportunity still exists. So when we look to a kid coming up in Dallas, they appear to have a lot more opportunity, but do they really if they want to work with a shovel and a pick? Well, who wants to do that? Some people do. I love working with a shovel. I don't want to do it for someone else, but physically... Right, I mean, when I was in telecom and I ended up for a few years kind of migrating for telecom into outside plant, and even though I was running jobs and things like that, when I would occasionally get a shovel in my hand and help my guys out, I felt good working like that. Some people want to build houses, right? Not be architects, and just, not everybody can be the architect. Somebody wants to swing the ham, hammer, run the, the saw, slap the drywall. Some people actually really get fulfillment out of that, and To tell you the truth, it's a lot more fulfilling uh, if you look at it as a whole than many jobs we consider good jobs. Well, if you got a job in data analytics for a large company, that would be a really great job. But is it fulfilling? To be an Excel ninja and be able to manipulate Excel and get a bunch of data out and all and do something. In some ways it can be because when you see the results of that channel through and you see the response, there is some. But in the end, it's not very fulfilling. At the end of the day, do you really feel like you did anything? But when you when you put up a wall and you look at it, you go, you know what? Somebody's gonna have a house now because I did that. That's pretty fulfilling. So you haven't had that. See, that's the biggest thing I think we've robbed for millennials: that that work has meaning, that that work matters, that you can feel good about doing things that are considered manual labor, right? Because the same guy that says, "Well, I don't want my son to be a cabinet maker," couldn't make a spice rack, let alone a cabinet. 
It's like you don't want them to do something that you're not capable of. You're calling something menial. You can't even do it half-ass, let alone well. By the way, have you priced cabinets? Do you know how much they cost? We're pricing for a kitchen right now, buddy. They ain't cheap. So why wouldn't you want your son to be a cabinet maker? Why wouldn't you want your son to take a job in construction but have the aptitude to move up and end up being a superintendent? Why, why wouldn't we want our children to take these pathways? This is one of the biggest things that's happened to millennials. We've told them that that type of work is not worthy of their appearance. right? That they should not even show up for a job like that. And then we say, why don't they work harder? Well, dumbass, you told them not to. So it also makes me wonder how much of what I would call millennial syndrome right, is geographic. How much of it's geographic? Northern West Virginia Ain't Dallas, te- ain't pl- let's say Dallas, let's say Plano, Texas, right? Up in Yuppieville, right? Or, um, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, right? How much of this millennial syndrome is because kids live in L.A. or Philadelphia versus like where I grew up in Pennsylvania? Because I remember as a kid, most of you that are, that are country boys, when I say country boys, I don't mean country western boys, I just mean outside of the city, rural kids, So country could be rural Massachusetts, you know, not just Texas or Wyoming. You probably saw city kids as kind of soft. Now, they might have had their whole, you know, because back in the 80s even, right, we had gangs and stuff like that. So I don't mean soft in that they wouldn't fight. There were no fights in the city. But fights always come down to this. If you're bigger and stronger, fighting doesn't prove anything. Right? It doesn't prove nothing. There's a whole bunch of people in this world that if I got in a ring with them, I'd just kick their ass. And there's a whole bunch of people that got in a ring with them, they'd just kick my ass. They're stronger, faster, bigger, whatever. Okay? Yeah, that's why we have weight classes and stuff like that in, in, in combat sports, so it'll be interesting. Because let's face it, watching a six foot six inch 400-pound guy beat the shit out of a five foot 530-pound guy is not very amusing. Right? And you can say, oh, you want about technique and leverage and blah, 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 whatever. No. Sorry. Reasonably equal in skill set, big guy wins. If not, there wouldn't be a heavyweight division in boxing. right? So I don't mean that there weren't fighters in the city. I mean they were soft, comparatively speaking. How many of you guys, if you're rural kids, ever had like kids come up from the city relations or something like that and, and you decide to go out and play in the woods or something and they get scared? Or you're away from home for more than an hour and they're like, don't we need to check in with mom and dad? Or what have you. You know, I mean, that's how I remember it being. That whenever anybody's kids, relations, friends, whatever, would come from a more uh, urban area into the rural area that I grew up in, that they seemed softer. That city life softens a, a, a youngster. I really believe that's the case. They don't learn as much. That's why I'm such a fan of at least getting a little outside of that urban center and teaching kids to grow up with dirt on their hands. Because I believe we have kids today that like they'd have a heart attack if they had dirty hands for more than five minutes. I grew up having a dirty body for most of the day because you only took a shower when you went home at night. And you know, that's maybe I'm not a germ. How many of these germaphobes are a result of this attitude? We can't go out and work hard anymore. So I think it's great that you have this view, but I think that 
you too need to understand your your contemporaries in other places. Some of it is regional, geographic. But some of that may be that you just have a better local economy for a not necessarily a total size, but for a broad spectrum of skills. And that blue-collar work pays decent. Because the problem like in an area like Dallas and Fort Worth, there's plenty of blue-collar work. But it pays minimum wage to a buck over minimum wage to two bucks over minimum wage. Because we have this huge labor pool of unskilled labor that we call illegal aliens that are willing to do that work for whatever it'll pay. And that drives down wages. It does. That's where illegal aliens actually cause a, a reduction in available uh, jobs. It's not what most of them do, by the way. Most of them are out picking oranges. Or they're actually doing higher end. I mean, there's a lot of illegal, illegal aliens that are doing higher end skill sets. But kind of that entry point, it does it does hurt. And there's a lot of opportunity in in this area, but because of the number of the sheer number of people, um, there's a lot more competition for each opening. It seems this state fares better than most, so you probably have less of it here. There's, I mean, Texas is a growth economy, but when you go into some of these other areas, so I think there's. That's what we're seeing. Like overall, the United States right now, we have pockets of real opportunity, pockets of real stagnation, and pockets of depression. And then you add to that what is life like and what are children told as they grow up. And the reason you seem to have such a big problem with millennials is number one, more people live in you know ten big cities than the rest of the country, and they're getting the coddling, okay? And that's the cities plus the sprawling suburbs around them. You, you could take 10 cities and the sprawling suburbs, and probably 70% of the people in the country live there. So there's more. But then, this is the most important thing that you guys need to understand on both sides of this. The millennials, the Xers like me in the middle, and the older generation, the tweeners, baby boomers, etc. You all need to understand that this is mostly a marketing campaign. See, it's real easy to convince people that you're awesome and other people suck. People love that. That's the e- I mean, if you want to be a marketer and you want affiliate marketing to work for you, you want I don't mean affiliates to go out and sell for you, but I mean people to affiliate themselves with your brand. Tell them they rock and everybody but them sucks, and man, they just run in the door. And so what you tell the 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 the, the baby boomers that are heading to social security and all, all of your problems are because this new generation doesn't value work the way you do. These kids suck. They're sorry, lame-ass sons of bitches. They don't want to get out there and work. They won't take a minimum wage job to get a start in life, you know, what have you. Now, the millennial has been told all his life, hey, when you just do what we say, you're going to have a great job. And then when that reality doesn't work and you've extorted as much of this, this, this person's livelihood for the next 30 years in the form of student loan debt at them as you can, and they're angry and they look back at you, you say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. They took, they raped the planet. They ruined everything. They got all the opportunity. You didn't get any at all. It's their fault, not mine. So that's the, the whole millennial problem is far less a problem than it is a hyped up marketing campaign. Because there's plenty of these young people that, yeah, they need a little guidance and direction, but they're just fine, and they'll be just fine in time if we stop telling them they're not going to be anyway. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, John from Virginia. Um, what are your thoughts on non-chemical strategies for dealing with uh, attention deficit disorder? Uh, details. 
after years of uh, having a whole lot of issues with um, being able to focus and actually accomplish tasks and get things done, uh, I decided that my uh, quality of life was being pretty negatively impacted. Uh, so I went to my doctor, uh, got officially diagnosed with ADHD, and now I'm uh, taking Adderall. Uh, I really have to say that the difference is uh, it's night and day. I mean, I'm able to devote myself to projects and get things done uh, without my brain going a million places all at one time. That being said, I really don't want to rely on pharmaceuticals forever. I'm uh, looking at this as an initial strategy, uh, sort of like how tilling a garden is pretty bad for the soil over long term, but in the right context can be a great initial strategy for dealing with crappy and compacted soil. So I know you've mentioned your ADD in the past, and I wanted to get your thoughts on your experiences and your ideas for longer-term dealing with these issues uh, beyond or without medication. Uh, I know you're not a doctor uh, or a psychologist, so I'm not looking for medical advice. Just want to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Oh, just take all your Adderall and throw it in the garbage. No, don't do that. And that's what I think some people would expect that I would say. There's a couple reasons here. The first one being, once you're on a medication like this, and this is why I, I want people to be very careful before they go on it, stopping taking it requires some medical supervision. So if you do decide you want to get off of this, you need to talk to your your doctor. And if your doctor's not willing to help, then you need to talk to another doctor. And I, I would not just quit taking it. Um, at all. So that, that's first of all. The second thing that mitigates this a little bit is you're an adult. You've made this decision for yourself. Okay, so with that being the case, I have a lot less problem with an adult saying, in my professional life, I have a problem and this helps me fix it, uh, than I do with a, a parent or a teacher saying, this kid won't sit still for eight hours a day, so let's medicate him which is the way this stuff is, is usually used. But before we even go forward with this, what is Adderall? Adderall is a combination of amphetamine and dextroamphetamine. In other words, it's speed. It's speed. It ain't that much different other than it's you know a known dosage and things like that than the speed speed freaks use on the street. Now, Using it for the purpose of ADD or ADHD control is used in very small dosages comparatively. And for some reason, people with true hyperactivity, when given a bit of a stimulant, not a lot, but a little, a certain amount, usually the way it's found out is you go like the smallest dose possible, and then over time increase that dosage until control is met and back off a little, and if it's, and you find this spot. You hold it there. You say, okay, that is the therapeutic dose for this patient. There's no doubt that it works. Here you have somebody telling you it works. If you say it doesn't work, while this grown, intelligent, logical person is telling you it does, then your bias is getting in the way. It works. But it's speed. It's, for all intents and purposes, you could call it meth. All right? It's not methamphetamine, it's amphetamine and dextroamphetamine. Yeah, it's amphetamines. So <laughs> the the issue there is what else is it doing to your heart rate, your body, your mind over time? Um, if you have had glaucoma, you're not supposed to take it. Well, what if you get glaucoma while you're taking it? If you have severe, anxi severe anxiety and agitation, you're not supposed to take it. Well, what if it causes severe anxiety and agitation, but it does so so incrementally you convince yourself it's normal? There's a lot of things that happen when we take drugs that, you know, 
we, we're not really aware that they're occurring. So that, that's a concern. My personal view is that the same therapeutic effect, and this is a personal opinion, this is not medical advice, the same therapeutic effect that is derived from the use of amphetamine could be derived from the proper use of non-pharmaceutical stimuli, like black coffee. Why not? It's the same theory. We create a little bit of a stimulation and an overstimulation, and they somehow counter each other. I mean, I'm a little less concerned about this than if you told me you were on something like an SRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That that scares the shit out of me when I hear people are on that. Um, you're going to have to make this decision for yourself. My belief is also that the best thing you can do when you have a hyperactivity disorder is have physical activity. But sufficient physical activity also has a great deal of opportunity to correct things. And the other thing is I would tell you, having the right nutrients and vitamins and minerals, etc. in your body may have a major impact. I would tell you that you might be someone that could really benefit from talking to Dr. Stephen Lewis over at Doctors Nutrition. I try to make, no matter who I have support in the MSB or I've had on the show as guests, I try to never make this an infomercial for anybody's business uh, when I do this podcast. But Stephen Lewis, what he'll do is he'll have you go to a lab, very inexpensively compared to doing it through a doctor. He's a chiropractor. But he'll have you just go to a lab and pay cash for a series of tests. He'll test everything from your vitamin, mineral levels, a whole litany of tests. And he'll look at those tests, and then he'll suggest supplementation based on those lab results. I wonder how many people that are dealing with ADD or ADHD would benefit from that. Now, on a full disclosure of my issues, I am almost certain that had I been subjected to diagnostics, especially the diagnostics of today and the metrics of today, In the 1980s when I was a kid, what I would have been diagnosed with wouldn't have been ADD or ADHD, though a teacher probably would have made that diagnosis. An uh, actual professional would have probably made the diagnosis of Asperger's, which up till now is recently anyway has been considered an autism spectrum disorder, which means it's in the same family as autism, but they didn't call it autism. And now they've actually just labeled it as a form of autism, which I, I completely disagree with because I know what autism looks like and I know what Asperger's looks like and it's like comparing a hot dog to a hamburger. Uh, yeah, they're both meats and you both put them both on bread, but they don't really look or taste alike. Um, Asperger's has some, at times, manifestations of uh, hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder. But it also has a lack of empathy. It took me a long time to learn to be empathic with people, to actually understand why they were upset, things like that. So it's a different world. So I, I, don't, I don't have an apples to apples, because just like Asperger's ain't autism, Asperger's ain't ADD. Now, I do have a hard time paying attention until you give me something I want to work on. So that would be my question. Do you have a hard time paying attention to things you want to work on, or do you have a hard time paying attention to things that you have to work on but don't want to? Because then your problem might be lifestyle-oriented. So, now, then you have to say to yourself, so do I want to live this wild and crazy way? 
because it might lead to a very entrepreneurial path, and it's not a guaranteed paycheck. Right? So if I can get myself into a zone where I want to do this, I don't care how distracted I become, I'm, I'm going. The hard part is starting, right? Because I got all this crap going on. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. But when I go, okay, this is the thing that needs to be done, and I want to do it, and stop looking over there, Jack, there. Okay, look here. Start. Once I start, that's it. I'll I'll rip the door off if you you freaking disturb me while I'm working. And that's an Asperger's thing. So I don't really know if that's the kind of situation you're in where it's you can focus, but you can only focus when it's something you want to do or you're interested in. Right? I call that being human, right? But I realize that I am different than what you would call average. I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Average is boring. Average is normal, and normal is getting in a car every day to drive many miles with people you don't want around you, risking your life to get to a job you don't want to be at, to earn a paycheck that pays you less than you're worth, so you can get in that car and do the same thing on the way home. All the time while paying tributes to your masters at the central, at the state level, the city level, the county level, and the federal level. And to die, hopefully, before your little menial savings runs out. That's average. That's normal. I have no interest in that. But if you want to hold down a job, it, it might be necessary. You know, and it sounds like you made an informed decision. And, and one thing I want to say about these things like these medications for things like ADD, ADHD, and all different types of mental disorders. The, a lie is always sold with the truth. It's not that that does that it doesn't work, and it's not that it might not be necessary. You take the fact that there's a small segment of people that it works really well for, and for them to achieve what they want, it is necessary, or it's it's one of the ways that you can get there. And you take that fact, and then you sell a multi-billion-dollar pharmaceutical to a whole shitload of people that aren't in that narrow sliver. You could be in that narrow sliver. This is a discussion for your doctor and some sort of alternative healthcare practitioner. But please, when you're on any kind of regular uh, medication like this, never withdraw from it without some level of help and supervision. It's it's really critical. Um, it might be less critical here than, like, say, blood pressure medications or, or statins or something like that. But it's not something that, that in general practice, should just be stopped. Even the meth addict, the actual meth addict, is better off in a clinic under supervision with with assistance from methadone in general, health wise and and success wise, than just cold turkey quit. Some people do it. Some people have the willpower for it. Some people have the the physical uh, ability to do it without uh, severe consequences. But please, most of these pharmaceuticals, you need. The same people that got you on it, you need their assistance in removing yourself from it. And if you really want off and that person's not willing to help you, find someone else. Find someone else. Um, I can't give you a good answer here. I would love to hear from people today that are adults, that, are on, that, 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 have, that were adults when they chose to go on these medications and then successfully stopped taking them and found another course and what worked for you. Because that's more valuable, in my opinion. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's DH from Colorado's Western Slope. Had an interesting conversation with a friend the other day where he was uh, very much claiming that we are still a democracy, whereas I took the side that, no, we're in fact a tyranny of the minority 
masquerading as a tyranny of the majority. Curious to hear your thoughts on the subject. I think I know what you're going to say, but I'd like to hear it anyway. Thanks. Bye. It's not quite the way I've put it in the past, but it's there's no more accurate way to put it than a tyranny of the minority masking itself as a tyranny of the majority. In other words, the majority of people want what we have, and therefore they're they're responsible for the misery the minority's experiencing. And if you balance it perfectly, you try to make sure the majority's never more than about 52 to 54 percent of the people at any one time. Uh, that way there's enough of a minority to counterbalance them and make them think it's still the other minority group of the minority's fault that they don't have everything they want. And if you take it to like a counter pendulum and get it swinging back and forth so each side feels disenfranchised at different times, you've really got it going on. And then what you need is you need a little group in the middle you can move back and forth. You need four to six percent of the general population that don't know what they believe at all. They don't stand for anything. We call them the mushy middle in politics, and you just shove them back and forth like on an old school scale, like they used to have in the doctor's office, where you move the counterweights back and forth. That's how you do it. Now, so how do you do that and, and actually not have the majority being the ones that are really enforcing their will? Well, you control their opinions. That's all you have to do. And the reality is, with the current media apparatuses that are in place, with the willingness of people to believe what the TV and the radio says, we can sell the population on a need for or requirement for just about anything in about 24 hours. And that means we only need a small group of people to control a large group of people And to give you some numbers on how that works, it is the case that of all of the major media outlets out there, five companies own them all. And those five companies are controlled by around 300-ish top executives divided up amongst them that decide what you see, when you see, and how you see it. How it's packaged and how it's presented to you. That group is made up of people who are highly connected to the wealthiest people in this country. We call them the oligarchy. And they're part of a completely unholy cabal that interacts with all levels of government. And its favorite place to be is in the federal government. Because once you control something from the federal level, the states have a very hard time doing anything about it. States are very capable of passing restrictions in addition or controls in addition to what the federal government does. But they're very weak and very poor at actually asserting sovereignty and retracting a restriction employed upon its people by the federal government. And over the years, as the federal government has grown in strength in this country, that's become more the case. So the minority enforcing their will under the disguise of the majority is almost absolutely impossible to argue against being the case. If you have a situation where 300 people collectively decide what message goes out to the American people this week, measles is going to kill us all, even when it's not, and I'll talk more about that with another call later, then... That's what the majority of people will believe. And then the majority of people will believe, we need mandatory vaccines. And we'll talk about what you're really saying when you say that with a call coming up in a bit. 
but we had the majority of people in this country convinced just a few months ago that Ebola was going to get us all. Where's that now? Now, how did that happen? You don't, you think it was just an accident? It was just a natural cycle of news? You don't think there was an agenda to having you distracted by Ebola coming up on an election? Really? Okay, an election that wouldn't have mattered anyway because the people that are being elected are already bought and paid for? You, you, you really think that's not all part of a plan if it's possible for 300 people to control what you see here and the, the primary message behind it? Don't you think they would? How hard do you think you have to work to become one of those 300-odd executives? Do you do it because you want to have more free time to play canasta? Or do you do it because you want the power that comes with it? Of course that's what it is. It's actually the only logical explanation. It's actually the only thing that makes sense. When you have a society that has its focus changed as quickly as a dog following a biscuit back and forth when you tease it, that's what the American people are like with their daily dose of a big steaming mug of bullshit soup. Look over here, look over there, look over here. But those in power realized long ago that if you did it to everybody the same way at the same time, that sooner or later they'd figure it out. So you need to be divisive, and each side needed to have a team to root for. Okay? They had to have a team to root for. As long as you have a team to root for, you'll ignore all the bad shit your team's doing And point the finger at the bad shit the other team's doing. That's just like what your team's doing. Swear to God, it's okay when your team does it or they didn't do it. You want a perfect example? What's this clown's name right now? The guy with the helicopter. Brian Williams. That's it. Brian Williams uh, from the media said that he was in a helicopter that was hit while he was doing war correspondence in Iraq. Had to, it went down or something like that. And he lied. He's come out now and says that never happened. It was a helicopter that was well ahead of us. And we were completely safe the entire time. And it never happened. And I made it up. And boy, boy, boy. The giant marionette show continues, does it not? And for once, pretty much even the liberal and conservatives agree this guy's a scumbag. How dare he do that? So my response when I've seen things posted about this is, just so we're clear, lying about your role and involvement with military activities to make yourself look better is wrong, right? Okay, so... I don't want to slaughter anybody's sacred cow here, but I just want you to see the hypocrisy in this. For three weeks, the marionette show had people going, Chris Kyle, Chris Kyle's the greatest in the world. We stand with Chris, Chris Kyle Day in Texas. Hallelujah. Okay, so Chris Kyle lied about punching Jesse Ventura in the face. Chris Kyle lied about being deployed to New Orleans, Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. Chris Kyle lied about an altercation where he supposedly shot six individuals outside of a gas station and then made a phone call to, to headquarters at Quantico or whatever, put the police department on the phone with them. They told him who he was, and they said, be on your way, and he left and do nothing. Okay, That's lying, too. Now, I know what people say, well, well, Chris Kyle really did have great service record. He really did all these things. And so, yeah, okay, maybe he was a tall tale teller or whatever, but, you know, he actually did. And this other guy, he just tried to, that's true, and I actually think it makes it worse. I think it makes it worse. 
because there was no need. You know, Brian Williams, I'm not making excuses for him, but there's clearly why he would do it. Greater credibility, right? Chris Kyle didn't need it. But see, as long as we're divided into a team, well, I am a Republican. I am a conservative. I support our troops. This guy went overseas and he fought for my freedom. I know that because the TV says so. I have to stand with everything he did, but I must attack this other individual who did the same thing, lied about his role in a perceived military operation for the benefit of making himself look better. Okay? It's okay for one to do it. It's not okay for the other one to do it. See, it's wrong when both do it. And the fact that we can easily be manipulated to choose to side with someone who's done the exact same thing is someone we find reprehensible for doing that same thing shows how easy to control we are. It shows how willing the American people are to pick up that big steaming mug of sopa de mierda de toro and chug it down and point at the person across the street from them and saying, he's holding his cup in his left hand. Look how bad he is. He's horrible. And all they need is about 6% of you to occasionally change which hand you hold your mug in, left or right, back and forth, and that's all they need. Yes, I was actually tossing a mug back and forth in my hand there. That's the clump you heard. And that's my wedding ring on the mug. It's empty. My mug was not full of bullshit soup. It was full of pork stock today. It's quite good for you. I suggest you try some of your daily diet. And maybe while you're drinking your mug of bone broth, turn the freaking news off, America. With that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's David from Connecticut. I just had a quick question for you. I was considering using the miracle Grow Organic Choice Spray. I see that it's made with uh, sugar beets. I'm going to go out on lemon, pretty much assume they're GMO beets. Assuming that they are, um, do you think that that's a concern for somebody that doesn't want any of that uh, GMO fabricated stuff in their garden? Um, details are I'm just going to be growing um, my potted vegetables like last year, tomatoes, kale, spinach, um, maybe try some uh, my handed strawberries. Anyway, I uh, love the show. Thanks very much, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Well, if you Google Miracle Grow Organic Choice GMO, you will find a whole bunch of hysterical people talking about how evil GMOs are in there, and they'll say something like, it says it's six parts nitrogen. What's in the other 94%? Well, actually, it's 12 parts nitrogen. And what's in the... <laughs> you at least get that right. Um, but what's, what's, what's in the rest of it is, uh, well, the same thing. It's all made from fermented beet juice. That's just the percentage of nitrogen in fermented beet molasses. Basically, uh, that product is a horticultural molasses that's derived from beets. Are they GMO? Probably. If one was growing USDA certified organic um, sugar beets, they would be worth far too much money to ferment down into a fertilizer. And here's the other thing. The miracle Grow Organic Choice is not organic certified. It does not carry organic certification, and the word organic 
on there doesn't mean what most people think it means. It means living, live. It means plant tissue. It means carbon-based life form. It means what the word actually does mean. Instead of the word, what the, what the government has tried to make the word mean. Now, what does that mean? It don't mean much. If you were drinking it, the composting cycle breaks down most of this stuff. It's a decent product. It works. When I can find something else, I use something else, but I've used that product myself and I wouldn't hesitate to. If it had any kind of herbicidal residue that was carrying through in it, we would see the type of detrimental effect, and we see that happen with uh, commercial compost, and we don't see it. If you want to be a purist, you shouldn't use it. There's, there's no doubt. If I come to your house and I find one Dorito, if I find one piece of an old El Paso taco, taco shell, If I find a single corn chip that's not certified organic or locally grown or something like that, or you didn't make it yourself, if I find any product with corn oil or corn syrup or corn sugar in it at all, and you're worried about that, I'd start in the pantry. Because in the end, it's pretty much molasses. And you're going to dump it in the ground. And it's going to feed soil life. And I'd rather that a GMO beet be made into molasses to improve a natural system than be made into sugar and put into your body. So it would be my first choice, but I'd be a hell of a lot more likely to use it than I would like a granular NPK. I think from a, a standpoint of gardening, it's, it's not going to have any detrimental effects whatsoever. And I highly doubt you're going to get any nasty GMO genes in your body by using it as a fertilizer. But it wouldn't be my first choice if I had another one. But that's going to be the case. So what people will say, well, I won't use that. And they'll go out to like a, a, a materials company or a landscaping company. They'll get a great big sack of horticultural molasses. Where do you think that came from? And if you're wanting a molasses sugar type fertilizer to be organic what you're wanting is a premium food product made into a fertilizer so I think you can do most of what you need to do with compost and compost teas but especially when you're establishing beds that have never that haven't had time to be built up supplemental nitrogen is a good idea and and beet juice horticultural molasses are a great source of that They feed soil organisms and they build life in the soil. And I think this is something else that especially not so much perennial growers, but gardeners need to understand. When you put that first crop into the year and the soil's still cold and yet it's warm enough to germinate and all, when we get into the actual spring, it takes several weeks for all those little bugaboos down in the soil that have been sleeping all winter long. They don't get up. At the crack of dawn, like a hard-working American, right? They're not like the grass. So the grass is brown. It starts to get warm out. We hit March 21st. Boom, the grass is awake, baby. Let's grow. Let's turn green. Let's feed some cows, okay? The soil life is kind of like a teenager on Saturday afternoon. I don't want to get up. Do I have to get up? Really? All right, I'll have some breakfast. Nom, 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 nom. Oh, well, that... 
that tasted pretty good. Let's put cartoons on. Okay, now I'm a little interested. Uh, I'm going to go to the bathroom now. Okay, I did that. and Now I'm a little bit more hungry. Now I'm going to start like doing my thing, right? That's how soil wakes up. It wakes up in this kind of dreary, oh, dude, kind of way. And for plants that are adapted and plants that are perennial and plants that have energy stores because they're perennial from the previous year, trees that have taken all the sugar out of their leaves, dropped it into their roots, and gone dormant and waited – They have the ability to kind of go until the soil wakes up. You go and put a pepper plant in the ground that was living in a little pot and it hasn't even established its roots yet and all of its little soil buddies are still like, dude, I'm not ready to make exudates for you yet or whatever, man. Give me like a week or two. And that pepper plant's just kind of lethargic. That's why we need to be doing supplemental nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus from some good quality organic source if we're going to annual garden early in the year. Soil just, this is why a lot of people are like, man, my spring garden doesn't do that great, but my fall garden, wow. I plant brand new starts in the fall. It just blows up. Well, the soil's awake. And the, the kid is now, the, the teenager, right? He's now at a freaking rock concert, dude. He's got his black T-shirt on from the 80s. Right? Yeah, let's go. Whoa, party, dude. Right? He's not even thinking about crashing out at 2 a.m., which is about mid-December, right? He's going to crash out and go to sleep for four months. Not even there. Like, he is rocking. Right? That's why your fall garden picks up so much. So I wouldn't necessarily not use it, but understand why you need something. That's why compost tends to not do quite what you think it would do very early in the year when it's still really cold out. Because compost is not just about what's in it, it's about what lives in it and how those biological components are going on. Because remember, the plant puts out an exudate, which is a type of sugar. It just squirts it out of its root. That, that exudate attracts certain soil life, and that soil life, in consuming that exudate, and dying or defecating or being eaten by another soil form makes what the plant needs bioavailable. Well, if everybody's asleep or everybody's still hung over from the big party and not quite awake and going on yet, we have to step in and do something. That's why I love perennials. Perennials have their own solution to this problem. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Nick from Canada. I'm just calling uh, with a question about nitrogen fixers. Um, I was wondering if you'd still have to inoculate your beans and your pea plants uh, with the nitrogen-fixing bacteria if you have black locusts in your yard. Would they already have the nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and is it the same? Awesome. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Bye. Um, I want to change your question just a little bit to make it more technically accurate when I answer it. I want to change it to do you from do you have to inoculate to should you inoculate? And the answer is if you would inoculate without locusts, you should inoculate with locusts. Okay? So here's what I mean by that. A locust or a mimosa tree or many of the other nitrogen fixers that are trees have a symbiotic relationship with bacterium that yes, form these little colonies and nodules on their roots and make nitrogen. The the type of bacteria is different 
in different legumes. How different is the ba particular bacterium, the rhizomial bacterium that lives on a locust tree versus a, a cowpea? I don't know how different it is. Will the same ones do it? I don't know. Is it probable that the optimum bacteria is the same? It's probably not the case. The bacteria that forms nodules on the roots of a soybean is not anywhere near the same as the one that does it on a cowpea. And you'll find that when you, when you look at seeding crops and you look at something like a clover, that it'll, it'll call for a clover vetch inoculant. And if you're doing a pea, it'll call for a pea inoculant, a pea and bean inoculant. So even in the annual world of closely related legumes, you have different bacterial strains that are optimum. So you, if you would have otherwise, you probably still should, is the way to answer it. Now, the reason I changed it is, do you have to? Well, you don't have to do anything. Um, I've seen cowpeas do very well and set lots of nitrogen without being inoculated because these bacteria exist in the soil. And the more frequently that crop's been grown there, the higher the natural population. Um, we have to ask ourselves, is it really super sciencey stuff to make these bacteria? And what people have done is taken soil from the roots around legumes for a long time and cultivated it by basically feeding it sugar to multiply it, and then by feeding it a starch to teach it to, be, to once again do what it's supposed to do, to strengthen it a little bit, and putting it back into the soil. And that's been done with bacteria for legumes, and it's been done with microorganisms of all different kinds in both fungal and bacterial-dominated soils. It's what we call IMO, or indigenous microorganisms, and probably the, the people that are the most switched on about it in the world are the Koreans. It's a very traditional Korean organic farming methodology, IMO, and if you go to YouTube and search for IMO, um, and if you, if you don't find what you're looking for, you find like some singer or something, put it IMO gardening, IMO Korea, IMO organic gardening, you'll find all types of videos about ways that this can be done. So the issue with inoculation when you're doing a legume is it always works better if you do than if you don't. And it's stupid cheap, so do it. Okay, that's, that's the best explanation I can give you. It's not that you have to. It's that you do get better results. You get more of what you're after. And a package of inoculant that will inoculate enough seeds to seed half an acre probably costs three bucks. So I can't come up with a good reason to not do it. But it is a good thing to know that if you couldn't get it and you were in a sustainable farming, you know, model and you wanted to do it as a subsistence model on your own, you could in fact cultivate the bacteria from the soil in which the legumes were grown. And then use that as your inoculant in the next season. It has been done. Um, I read an article. I just can't remember where from or I'd find it for you. But where an individual did this specifically with soybeans. Um, because wherever they lived, soybean inoculant apparently was expensive or some BS. And it was somewhere in England. It might have been in Permaculture Magazine or something like that. Where they actually just used the dirt from the previous crop and cultivated more bacteria and inoculated and compared two groups. And the, the group of plants that received the cultivated inoculum 
outproduce both in, in biomass and production and nodules. You can see a, a visible difference in nodules when the two plants are pulled out and the nodules on the roots are examined. To me, it's two bucks, three bucks, four bucks a package. A package has about a billion of those little microbes in there. It's too cheap not to do. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I'm calling to get your opinion and a look into your crystal ball about mandatory vaccines. There's a lot of uh, talk about non-vaccine parents uh, being sued or jailed or their children being taken. Uh, right now, a uh, law is possibly going to be passed in California where the children cannot go to public school unless they're vaccinated. Not a big deal, public school, but I don't want my kid taken. Um, this may be a scare tactic, but I'll tell you what, it's working. I would love to hear your opinion on this and your thoughts. Thank you for everything you do. Bye. Well, I alluded to the fact that this call is coming up, and I think that to actually figure this out, you have to do something that's very hard for most people to do in a world where you're constantly served up bullshit soup by the media. To break this issue into three separate issues and to examine each one independent of the other. And right now the media is doing all that it damn well can to prevent you from doing that and divide you into two reactionary groups. Vaccines are the devil and kill everybody, and people that don't vaccinate are the devil and they can kill everybody. That's, that's the exact divide that's desired. And the way that divide is maintained is by not breaking this issue into its three component parts. Component one, are vaccines relatively safe and effective and do they pose the risk of potential side effects and harmful effects for some individuals? Okay. Issue two, is it acceptable to require mandatory vaccinations or do people have a right to refuse medication for themselves or for their children? And three, how dangerous is whatever disease du jour that we're talking about vaccinating against? How dangerous is it for you, your children, and the rest of society? And you have to look at this in each component part, or you can't have a logical analysis and a logical conclusion for yourself. So let's start out with the first one, the most important one I think right now. How dangerous is measles to the average person? It isn't. It isn't. And it's very disingenuous for the World World Health Organization and the CDC and the United States government and the media cabal to use the figures for death from this disease from the entire world to sell you on how dangerous it is to you in America. Let me tell you a fact. The number one thing that kills people throughout the world right now, especially children, is diarrhea. That's the number one cause of death in the world today is diarrhea. From, from poor sanitation, bad water, etc. These children, they get diarrhea in these horrible conditions and they end up shitting themselves to death through dehydration. It is the number one cause of death in post-disaster environments like the earthquake in Haiti. And you know what cures it? Amodium. Four dollars of Imodium will save the life of a child in a disaster zone that's stricken with, 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 with critical amounts of diarrhea. But that doesn't mean that every American needs to be giving your kid a tablespoon of Imodium every day 
because people in Sri Lanka or wherever are dying of diarrhea. The two are not connected to each other. Okay? And if your kid gets diarrhea here, sure, you give them Imodium, but you don't worry that they're going to die unless they have some other really bad things going on. But a mother in one of these third world countries, if the kid gets diarrhea, they're worried right away their kid might die because they often do. So this overinflated death rate for measles are still, and it's all because they don't have vaccinations. Bullshit. It's not why the death rate's so high. The death rate's high in these third world shitholes because they're third world shitholes where children die of conjunctivitis. <sighs> Look that one up to see what it is. They die of congenital defects that no one dies of here. They die of the flu. They die from the cold. You don't get the flu or the cold here like, oh my God, I'm going to die now. Well, you might with the flu the way they hyped that. But say, the first box, is measles a serious risk to the average American? No. No. And the fact that we do vaccinate the vast majority of people in this country whether they're informed or uninformed, when they choose to do this, makes it less of a concern. Okay? It's not like, okay, so that's, we, the first thing you have to understand in this current cycle, you're being sold fear, and here's my forecast. 10 to 21 days, you will not hear anybody talking about this anymore for a very long time. This is a current fear cycle. Pay attention to me. Look at me. So, step one. How dangerous is the measles? It ain't. It ain't. It ain't. It ain't. It's all bullshit soup. Stop consuming it. Does that mean there's no one who can pose a risk to a center? No, no, no. But the cold can pose. Well, we have the immune compromised. They're more at risk from people with the flu than measles. Okay? By the way, if you're over 40 and you haven't gotten a booster shot for your measles in the last 10 years, you're just as likely to be the cause of it being spread as, your, as a kid from some guy in Kansas who didn't vaccinate. Okay? You got that. So we'll just put that out. We've had that discussion now. Now let's move on to the second part. Are vaccines effective and relatively safe? I personally believe the answer is yes. Now, they're not 100% effective. I don't think some of them are even 90% effective. But I do think that they conclusively and scientifically lower your risk of contracting an illness. Are they relatively safe? Yes, but it's relatively safe for me to get in my car and drive someplace. It doesn't mean that there's no risk to it. And when we say there's that... The, there's no risk to vaccines at all. I would invite those of you with that opinion to do something. I will put out a link for you in today's show notes. It will go to a website. It will list all the vaccines that we routinely give. Okay? And even some we don't so routinely give that you get when you go out of the country, like yellow fever. I want you to look at that list, and I want you to start downloading the PDFs if you think there's no risk. And I want you to read them. The one for measles, I believe, was 22 pages long. This is a copy of the inserts that go to the doctor when they sent him the vaccine. Most of the pages discuss the risks and the side effects of the vaccine. And some of them weren't so nice. So when you say there's no risks associated with vaccination of healthy individuals, there's no side effects, it's just all... Hysteria, anti-vaxxer, nut, nutterism. 
All you need to do is look at the insert that comes from the people that make the vaccine that says, uh-uh, no, here it is. You'll see all kinds of contraindications and things like that. And we still recommend that you use it because the risk is lower here and there. Okay, fine. But what I believe that you can conclusively see about vaccines is they come with inherent risks and they come with an inherent benefit. And by and large, the benefit outweighs the risk. Those of you who are, who are anti-vaccine, don't get upset with me. We're not talking about you yet. We're evaluating part B. We already did A, the overhype by the media. How dangerous is the current thing we're talking about? Measles. It's not. Now we're talking about B. Do vaccines work? I think if you say they don't work, you have a serious problem, and you don't want to look at the reality of how effective they've proven to be. How many people didn't die of tetanus in combat situations once we had a tetanus vaccine for just one metric. Okay? So we can, we can say they do work. Sometimes they don't work worth shit, by the way. The current flu vaccine doesn't work worth a damn. I am not getting a flu shot. Just so now you guys that aren't anti-vaccine get upset with me. I'm anti-vaccine in some things for certain reasons. And I don't think that I need to have flu shot every year. And I'm not getting one because in the past 20 years, I got a flu shot one time and, and I got that in 1996. That was the year I got the flu. That's enough of a reason for me right there. But if I were a person who I thought would be, you know, really endangered by getting the flu, I might get my vaccination. Okay. And I'm not worried about spreading the flu to you because I don't go where you go. And it's not my responsibility to ensure your safety. I don't think that's the case. We're starting to see now I'm trailing off into the third. I'm even doing it. I'm going to the third basket. Our vaccines, vaccines are, so my opinion with all of the information, when I read all of the side effects that the people that make the vaccine say they have, not what the anti-vaxxer website says, what Pfizer says, what Merck says about their own vaccine, I'm convinced there is a risk of reaction to vaccine. And I remember being in the United States Army, where they give you a whole shitload of vaccines that are in processing at the same time. You step forward, two people with air guns go, ba-bam. You step forward again, two more people with air guns go, ba-bam. You step forward again, two more people with air guns go, ba-bam. You step forward one more time, and a guy with a syringe gives you whatever the hell didn't work from the air gun. right? And you get this ass load of vaccines. They put you all in a room, and they've been treating you like dog shit for two days at this point. Yelling at you, screaming at you, telling you not to lean on a wall, whatever. And they stopped that for about half an hour to an hour. And they got medics running all over the place checking people to see if anybody's going to freaking tweak out. Why? Because when they do a thousand people, every time a couple people have a serious reaction. So don't tell me they don't happen because they do. I've seen it happen. The military acknowledges it happens. The drug companies acknowledge it happens. And far more people have a reaction than die from measles per thousand infected or inoculated. So it just, the risks are there. So with all of that knowledge, my conclusion is that the wisest course of action for me and my family is to take all of the vaccines, and some are lumped together where you can't take them apart, but you can make them say MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, and many of you people freaking out about, you got to have your MMR, don't even know what rubella is, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, well, that's going to be one shot. We can't do measles, then mumps, then rubella, fine. MMR, so I'll take the vaccine for my son 
this time for MMR. Okay? And then we'll come back for this other one, and we'll come back for this other one, and we're going to observe if there's any negative effects whatsoever from this vaccine before we decide what we're doing about the next one. We're just going to space this out further than you guys want to do. And as a doctor, you should be happy because you're going to make more money that way because we have more visits. Okay? That's my well-reasoned, logical thought process. And to many people, that makes me anti-science and an anti-vaxxer. That means you are a blind-ass son of a bitch if you think I'm anti-science, anti-vaxxer for that stance. You are, you are so controlled to one side of the polarity that you can't see reality. And now, the third basket. Should you have the right not to get vaccinated or not to vaccinate your children? Or should we have mandatory vaccines? I don't think we should have mandatory vaccines. And here's why. I understand what mandatory vaccination means. If you say you are for mandatory vaccinations, you are saying it is okay for our government to send an armed individual to put a gun in a parent's face, hold down their child, and inject a drug into their child's body against their wishes. Now, if you want that dance, you can have it. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't or you can't or whatever. Just understand that is, in fact, your stance. Mandatory vaccinations for all children mean you're willing to let government use the threat of violence at the point of a gun and force a drug into a child's body against the child's wishes and against the parent's wishes. Please understand that that is your stance. Please don't think, well, I just think they should like fine them and stuff. What if they don't pay the fine? Well, they should make them pay it. And how are they going to do that? Because now we get into the callers. So we see now we've broken into three areas. How much hype is there about the disease? Okay, this isn't smallpox. It's measles. Okay, this isn't cancer of the ass. It's measles. And with very few exceptions, people in first world countries don't die of measles and don't even have major serious complications. But they said there's what the CDC's official responses that I read is the 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 number of serious complications is double that of the death rate. So in a first world country, the death rate for measles is 0.00002%, two ten thousandths of 1%, which would make the doubled rate of serious complications four ten thousandths of 1%. Okay? So it's just not as dangerous as they say it is. Vaccines probably do work, but no one should have the right to physically hold someone down, point a gun in their face, and inject them with something they don't want in their body. That's not America. That's my view. What do I think is going to happen? Most people in this country are too stupid to have the little mental exercise we just did, and they're completely okay with people holding other people down with guns, pointing it in their face, and making them comply with what they want, and we are going to move toward a world where it's just one new tyranny. And I do think that they will use CPS as the primary weapon to scare parents into doing vaccinations, to scare parents away from even doing what I said I think you should do, which is slow, methodical administration of vaccines over time. And I've had people respond to that. They do 
space them out. No, they don't. Not the way that I'm talking about. And it's my body or my child's body, and you don't get to say so. That's how I feel. You don't get to decide what goes into the body of my family. I do. And all of this hoopla and crap about, well, somebody somewhere has leukemia, and they might... Man, somebody somewhere is going to get run over by a motorcycle tomorrow. I feel terrible for both people. But I'm not willing to let somebody point a gun in somebody's face and force them to take an injection because somebody somewhere might anything. And if you're for mandatory, not making the case that it's a good idea, not saying, hey, there's certain places that if you want to be like, okay, if you want to say, you know what, like the caller said, you want to put your kids in public school, well, then they need to be vaccinated. I don't like that, but on some levels, I, I get it. Just from a leg legislative mitigation tactic by the, the government, the government never wants to be sued, even though the deck is always stacked in their favor. They really don't want to be sued. Especially the school board level, they can only stack the deck so much in their own favor. So I, I get it. But, of course, I want schools from the state gotten rid of anyway. I, I, I want to see a complete flipping over of the higher education system and the, 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 the childhood education system and convert it to a complete free market system anyway. So uh, I'm less because I think that's going to happen. I'm less concerned about that. But please try to do what we just did. Whenever these things come up, these are highly controversial issues, but they're controversial because you're confused as to what you're deciding. So I've been putting out a lot of stuff in social media this week basically saying, listen, the media is overhyping the threat. It immediately gets me accused of being anti-science and an anti-vaxxer and gets met with extreme resistance that everybody needs to be vaccinated. When I've not said a thing in the world about whether or not you should be vaccinated, I'm saying calm the hell down and don't let these people scare you. But they can't. it can't be seen... Because those three things, should we have mandatory or not, and what does that mean? Are vaccines effective and relatively safe? What are the risks and how do we mitigate them? And how dangerous is measles to people living in a first world nation? Those three things have been stirred into a giant mug of, guess what? Mierda de Suba de Toro. And America just keeps guzzling it down. So here's what I want to know. Those of you that are all upset with me now about how anti-vaccine I am, 15 days from now, When the word measles doesn't come across your TV even one time, and it goes away back to sleep for another two or three years, so they dust it off and freak you out with it again. And I've told you to not worry about this. And it proves, and I've been proven right yet again, like Ebola, where you were all freaking out. How many times will that have to happen before you'll be willing to separate the issues for yourself? Let's take another call. Jack, this is Kevin calling out of Georgia with a question for you. Where does people care fit into a business model if your business provides products or services for automation? A bit of background, wrapping up my PhD. I recently decided I wanted to get away from the sinking ship of academia, in part because of your show and in part because of what I've experienced from the inside of the university system. I will most likely be working in R&D for a large company for a few years while I save up some money and start building a business of my own. Once I have my own business, I'd most likely be automating medical testing, and I know that has the potential to 
doctors provide better care or provide the same level of care at lower cost with reduced staff. If your product or service makes it feasible for someone to lay off employees, where does the permaculture principle of care for people fit into your business, and how do you balance that with obligations to your own company? Thanks for all you do. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, let's look at it this way. Many years ago, men would show up at fields with scythes and sickles at harvest time and work relentless, brutal days till they were bleeding, harvesting, because we didn't have something called a combine. And when the combine came along, many of those men who saw that as a source of annual income, not the only source, but a source, were very upset, guilds were forced, people picketed, people were very upset and very angry that this eliminated jobs. How many people really wanted to do that work? Why were people doing that work? Because it was what was available, and they qualified for it, and it paid money. Was it wrong to use technology to harvest more food faster and better and feed more people solely because it ended up in some people not having a job? I think that most of us would say, no. Of course not. So when you look at a technology and that technology enables faster, cheaper, better production, if the resulting product is not injurious, then I don't think you have a people care issue at all. That would basically mean we should never figure out how to do anything better, faster, more uh, resource-friendly, etc. Because let's look at it this way. There's, there's, there's three ethics from a permaculture view. Care of earth, care of people, and return of surplus. How much damage does the person who has that job do ecologically? Would be one thing you'd have to, and they may not do any at all, but you'd at least have to ask that question. Because if, if, if what you automate actually reduces the drain and damage on natural resources, that's one of the other ethics. We have to balance the three. And what surpluses are created because of this? So when food goes into surplus, or medical, real good quality medical care, health care, right? Health care, something we don't have much of today. But if we could get health to go into surplus, that's a good thing. And just because somebody's job is eliminated doesn't mean we've hurt people. That's a very regressive way to think. Not conservative, regressive. Right? Progressive's evil, so regressive must be good. Okay? Hot is bad. 10,000 degrees will fry you and kill you dead. Okay? So cold must be good. 10,000 below zero? Those extremes in any direction are bad, always. We want nice, comfortable temperatures in the middle, right? And if you go too far to hot, you start to suffer, and enough, you die. Too far to cold, you start to suffer, and you die. You have to find the equilibrium point. And that's the challenge with automation as it comes. That's the challenge. How do we, find, how do we go through a process where so many jobs are going to be eliminated, but yet there's so much to gain, and do it with as much people care as possible. Almost every technology in existence cuts jobs. 
The internet has eliminated millions of jobs and created millions of opportunities. That's the actual exciting thing about technology. For those that embrace it, it almost always creates greater opportunity. So I think we have to balance the creation of technologies with do their results do harm? So if we create an automated technology for the medical industry that allows us to inject a whole bunch of people that are too stupid to be take what's good for them and get automatically injected with vaccines that they never wanted, that's people harm, not people care. right? But if I develop a system that allows a patient to be diagnosed and treated quicker with less human interaction, and it works, that actually gives the patient better, faster, more available care. I'm now providing better people care. It's not my job to ensure that you still have a job in the future. It's your job to adapt to the future. That might sound heartless, but it's not, because here's the reality. It's going to come. All this automation is coming like a huge pile of shit right down the pipe. It's not going to go away. And in many ways, it shouldn't. Why should people do things that they really don't want to do? Unless they have to, and unless there's a need for it. There used to be a job for a lot of cities where people would come in and dig all the shit out of the sewers that weren't really sewers. They didn't really take it away. They just held it in place. And they would dig it up, carry it away, and compost it, and bring it back as fertilizer. And when modern sewage technologies were invented that negated the need for that, Did it really harm the people that were doing that for a living? Or did they, you think they just, like anybody willing to do that, it's willing to find something better to do. And by freeing up that resource, those people were able to find something more productive to do. You're never going to have a world where humans don't develop new technologies and those new technologies don't move manual labor to the side. That's what technology does. And if we're going to take that approach, then we should all get rid of our TVs right now. You should get rid of your electric can opener. You should get rid of your electric light. You know, I mean, you should get rid of your car. We should go back to doing everything manually. And then everybody will have a job. It'll probably be pretty miserable, but they'll have a job. They'll have something to do. So I think the way you, you look at people care in any business is the people you touch Do you harm them? And if you are, it's not permaculture. And you'd say, well, okay, don't I touch the person? So I, I create this thigamawigabob, and I sell it to company ABC. And company ABC has 5,000 people working there. And com company ABC takes my thigamawigabob and eliminates 20% or 1,000 jobs. Didn't I touch them? I did my job. I did my job. Now, if it kills them, that's harming people. Okay? If it, if it, if it, it attacks them with some sort of malice. But we can't progress as a species with technology if we fear every technology that in, eliminates human labor hours. 
Because I'd like to believe that if we can pull our heads out of our asses and get ourselves through this time of crisis, we can move into a world where people's thoughts and stories and dreams have greater value than they do today to everyone. I think that's actually possible. And the reality is there's a lot of stuff in the world that is physical labor that we talk about that is meaningful, that does give people a sense of purpose. There's a lot of things that people have had to do over the years that they never wanted to do. Yes, at one time, I worked in a warehouse and I packed boxes, and it paid my rent. But I didn't want to do it. And if somebody at that point had invented a process that would have eliminated my job as packing, I might have been pissed. But in the end, they didn't really do me any harm. Anyway, that's a tough one, but that's that's my view on it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Nick in Colorado, uh, username NickBird on the blog. And I'm looking for general tips on risk management when running a business during periods of exceptionally high economic volatility. Uh, details. Uh, this summer, my family and I are relocating overseas to Mongolia, where we have some favorable opportunities and other resources available to us. Uh, the catch is that it is a small resource-based economy subject to much greater economic volatility and wilder swings between boom and bust than we usually see in the States. Now, in one sense, I figure what works for personal financial risk management and prepping should translate well in running a business, you know, being cautious with debt, not putting your eggs in all in one basket, having savings, backup plans, etc., but I also figure the devil's in the details, and as I'm relatively new to entrepreneurship, I'm guessing there are risk management strategies unique to running a business I might be missing. Uh, heck, with the current oil dust, this situation might apply to certain areas of the U.S. now, too, I suppose. Uh, oh, and lastly, uh, on a completely unrelated note, uh, two weeks ago at my work, we were told that our contract and our jobs are going away in March. But, you know, because we've saved through the years and we've already started mapping out our future beyond the rat race, um, not only not stressed out about it, I'm actually looking forward to my job ending. My only regret is I won't get to be able to take my work PC out to a grassy field and smash it with a baseball bat like they did in the office space. So anyway, thanks for what you do. Bye. Let me start out with congratulations, and I wonder how many people that you have told in the past, you know what I'm going to do? I and my family are going to move to Mongolia. We're going to start a business there. And they looked at you and you had this great job, said, that's risky. Why would you do such a thing? I wonder what your opinion is now that your contract's up and your job's going away. Which one seems riskier now? So I, I really believe that being in business for yourself, as long as what you're doing is viable, is always less risky than being employed by someone else. Because at least you get to decide whether you fail or succeed. You can be an outstanding employee. You can do everything right. You can pull the weight of four men, and your company can still fall on its ass and tell you they're sorry you got to go. And your company can still come across automation that does the work of 20 men and say they don't need you anymore. And your company can just decide that your sector isn't a business they really want to be in anymore because it's not as profitable as their other two sectors and make an intelligent business decision and go do that and your job's eliminated. So congratulations on being ahead of the curve here. Now, business risk mitigation is very specific to the business. 
And you've touched on the things that are most important, so I can only tell you so much. But I will tell you some things that you didn't mention. The number one thing that kills businesses is not a failure to initially succeed. People that never initially succeed, it doesn't matter. There's no risk mitigation strategy that could have been done. And they fail either through bad idea, bad execution, or poor market decision. Right? I went into the business of selling black and white TVs, and damn it, no one would buy them. There's nothing I can do there. There's no way to mitigate that. I'm sorry. You ain't going to make money selling black and white TVs and rabbit ears in 2015. People want flat screens. Um, but once a business is operational, you need to at all times as a business owner have your fingers on what I call the pulse of the business. What is the traffic to the website? What is the foot traffic to the brick and mortar? Either or, they're the same thing. What are your, 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 your standard everyday customers? Are, are you getting more regular customers or less? Is the revenue tailing off? And this is the, this is when businesses go into, to crash. The revenue's trailing off by four to five percent a month. But the entrepreneurs built the business to a point Where, you know what? I don't care. It doesn't matter. If I make 5% less this year than last year, I don't care. This happens with small companies a lot. That's a trend. I'm not talking about a low month. I'm talking about when you just feel there's just not... there's. Uh, I'm just not getting the amount of business I used to. You have to take corrective action. Whatever built the business, you need to do more of that and less of whatever's distracting you. And it's almost always the case that something's pulled you off course. Another risk mitigation strategy, yes. Have multiple sources of income. Have diversification in your business. But it is almost always the case when a business tries to be something it's not, that it, when it takes away from its core, it core, its core suffers. So you have to be willing to go back to that core and build that core back up. If you're in a, let's say you were in a content creation business, like I am, and you're just not getting as many viewers, listeners, whatever. First, quality of the content you're putting out is it still there? But next is quantity. If you look back and realize I'm kind of coasting now, maybe it's time for some new something, right? Listen to your market. If your market says, we hate this new thing you're doing, stop doing it. Like, I'm doing a Duck Chronicles. If, if, if no one was watching the Duck Chronicles, if we were saying, this is stupid, I would keep doing it. Right? I wouldn't. But since it's well-received, it's worth doing. So you have to always analyze things that way. Never operate counter to market realities. So... Here's a fundamental market reality that kills people all the time. People are terrified to raise or lower their price. And one thing that markets never are is static. Prices go up or down. And the biggest one that hurts people is they're unwilling to cut their price. In the beginning, it's, it's converse. You gotta raise, I'll talk about raising your price in a bit. But the, the fact of the matter is when you put a product out for a certain amount of time, You hit the, the people who are most likely to buy from you at that price point for a long enough period of time. Then eventually it gets harder and harder to make that sale. And as competitors come in 
and sell something different or better or cheaper or whatever, it becomes more so the case. But you say, I will not cut my price. And the number one reason, the number one stupid reason, it will upset all the people that already paid a higher price. So an iPhone 5S doesn't sell for less than it did the day it came out. So a computer macked out doesn't sell for less a year later. Most products go down in price over time. The book that you bought when it came out in its first printing, because you really like the author, doesn't sell for less three years later. See, the market force is prices drop. The market force is prices drop. So let's take it back into my business, because I don't know your business. So, so I, it's easier for me to make the analogies with my business. People would look at me and say, well, then, Jack, you've been selling this MSB now for... Five years? $50 a year? You've not dropped the price. You do some sales and stuff like that, but the price has stayed the same. So aren't you counter to market forces because your price is static? You would think so, but it's not the case. When I introduced the MSB in February of 2009, there were three companies that did discounts, four videos that I had made, And a promise that it would be bigger in the future. Today there's 60 companies that do discounts. There's $200 worth of ebooks. And I don't want to make this a commercial for the MSP, but you get the point. Like I've kept adding value to it. And I've kept the price the same. So what that means is the price has actually gone down. And since it's a non-physical product, it's not as obvious from a business analysis. But when you're marketing and selling it, I'm selling something of greater value today. The new customer sees that new value. The old customers watched it increase. Hell, he just added two more people. That's great. I was going to buy that thing anyway. That saves me 30 bucks. Gee, that's over half of this year's fee. Done. I'm staying as a customer. And if it was physical product, you'd understand. So let's say that I had a great big orchard of apples here. And you paid me a certain amount of money uh, a year to come during harvest season, 10 weeks in a row, and get a basket full of apples. If I gave you a full basket of apples the first year, and a full the second, and a full the third, and a full the fourth every time, and I had priced it the same price every time, you'd say the price has stayed the same. If I gave you a, a full barrel of apples the first year, the second year, the third year, but by the third year I raised the price, you'd say I raised the price. Right? Okay? Makes sense. If you had bought into this program and in year one you came and I sold you a half a barrel or a half a, a, a basket every week for those ten weeks in the first year and you were happy to pay the price because it was still a good deal. And you came back the next year and said, I want to do this again. How much is the basket? And I said, the basket's the same price as last year. You said, fine, I'll pay it. I was happy last year. I'm happy this year. But when I gave you the, the basket, it was now three-quarters full. I've cut the price per apple. Real easy to see. So pricing in some way must be elastic to mitigate risk of a business. If it's stagnant, if the value price ratio remains the same, you're either going to run out of customers or you're no longer going to be able to operate out of profit as your underlying costs increase. You cannot fear either cutting or raising prices. 
Specifically, you can't fear it because it will piss off your prior customer. You can't be like, well, if I come out and sell this product for half of what we started out with, all the people that pay double are going to be pissed. Some will, most won't. The some that will probably weren't coming back to buy any. The people that bitch the most about that were probably not going to buy again anyway. So you're making a decision emotionally instead of logically. And, and like, otherwise, like you said, you know, don't have all your eggs in one basket. I mean, that's a huge one. So like my rule with a growing company is if we get a big client, we're not going to say, okay, that client's going to be 90% of our revenue. So we're not going to accept them. That's really stupid. Sure, we're going to take that client. But if I have to grow the business to serve that client, I'm growing it on contract labor, variable expenses in every way I can. I'm going to subcontract until I'm sure they're going to be there. And I'm going to immediately ramp up sales and marketing with the additional revenue. And I'm going to try to get enough business so that I can dilute that 90% down to 20 as fast as possible. And I don't want to dilute it with two big other customers. I want to dilute it with lots of other little customers. So I want to spread my business out. Pay attention to the trends. I mean, I can't give you more than that looking at it from a, a generic. I don't know what your business does. And I don't know anything about the Mongolia market. But I know that everything I told you just now is universal. One more and we're done for the Friday. Hi, Jack. This is Scott in Missouri. And um, I had a question about annual garden shade. Um, I'm installing an 800-square-foot series of beds and walkways um, you know, over the next coming few weeks. And uh, I've got a great site, you know, uh, south-facing, real close to water, close to all my stuff. Problem is it gets, it's going to get scorched in the middle of summer, uh, 14 plus hours a day of sun. So I need to provide some shade. And I was, so I guess I have a short term and a long term shade question. In the short term, do I kind of stick some heavy gauge, you know, steel wire over my bed and just do the shade cloth thing? Or do I, you know, try to do something else with shade cloth, um, you know, or some other avenue? Long term, definitely going to use some of your ideas on, um, you know, living fences, and also incorporate, you know, black locust and mimosa and things into the garden is what I'm thinking. Uh, get those up, and in a few years, they'll provide that nice dappled shade and kind of cut down on, on that summer scorch. Um, you know, wondered if you, uh, you know, had any thoughts on that, and uh, look forward to maybe hearing a little bit about it. Thanks. Talk to you later. Well, so like short term, what we should be thinking about is what are the most economical solutions that we can come up with? Because you probably don't need as much shade as you think you need. If your plants are well established by the time you get to peak sun, right, you, you may not need as much shade as you think you need. So let's talk about how we can do it. But let's talk about first, like how would we do it? Let's say we're monitoring it. With, yeah, these plants are just getting too much. There would be nothing wrong with going out and buying some shade cloth, slamming some fence posts in the ground and hanging it up, you know, like a 40 to 60% shade cloth. If your plants are suffering in the sun, it means they're getting more solar radiation than they can utilize. And there's a lot of places in the world, like here, that at the peak of summer, that the plants in the healthiest, fastest growing state they can be can only utilize about 60% of the solar radiation sometimes maybe only 40 of what's available. So if you put them under 60% shade cloth in that environment, and they're getting 40% of the radiation, they might still be at 100% growth. In a different environment, they might reduce their growth because they, they're not getting enough. So you have to balance that. So 
putting up some shade cloth, slamming some big T-posts in the ground to do it with and all. Easy. I wouldn't do it unless you see the need for it, and I'd only do it where you see the need for it. And if you and, and you're going to have enough time to look and go, yeah, those are starting to suffer from the sun, and get it in within a week and be fine. As long as you well establish your plants early on. Okay. Now the long then the, so let's go. That's crisis. Because I don't think unless you're growing freaking I don't know. Something that's like a shade, like friggin' ginseng, you should be stringing up shade cloth. Unless your crisis response. So the other thing you can do is say, well, what would give my... Because what you don't necessarily want is the thing shaded all day long. You want it to get spots of shade. So get shade here, then sun, then shade, then sun. Has recovery times. Sunflowers. Plant sunflowers. Great big leaves. And if you if you find... And, and unlike shade cloth, we're like, I bought the wrong shade cloth. I bought 60%. I should have brought 40. So this, they're getting a little bit too much shade. Cut some of the lower leaves off the, the sunflowers. Open it up a little bit. See what happens. It needs more. Open it up a little bit more. Sunflowers will stand through almost the entire gardening season. They'll grow faster and everything around them. And they're a living trash you can put beans up of. So plant sunflowers for some level of shade. Now, the next thing is your long term. And you talk about living fences and all. What I would suggest is considering planning like around your garden and maybe in your garden and through your garden, figure out your own based on your solar aspect and all leguminous trees like mimosa or locust. Now, what do those do? Well, they fix nitrogen. Isn't that spiffy? That's great. They also grow fast, but it's almost like nature knows what it's doing. So the very tree that would also provide your garden with nitrogen and create a soil cycle and allow you to pull limbs and branches off it and coppice back and use that for mulch also has a very special leaf on it. It's fern-like. And it's a, it's a sun filter. Locust trees do not create complete shade, especially if they're kept small. Like a black locust can be kept relatively small. A little bit higher than your head height, pruned constantly. When it gets too high, coppice that coppice or actually pollard it back to about chest high. Just whack it, and it'll just sprout out the next year and come right back. It'll be wide open in the spring when you need the sun, and it'll blow up in the fall. And you only need a couple of years to establish trees like that. Mimosas, locusts, etc. You can establish those in three to four years. So I'd plan those out based on the size you want them to be, based on their filtering capacity, etc. That would be your long-term strategy. That's that's how I would do that personally myself. Now you've got nitrogen in the ground from the cycle with the leguminous trees. You've got a big source of green nitrogen mulch. You can just pull branches off and, and go to the ground. You've got a shade source. You've got pollinator habitat. You've got predatory insect habitat. You've got it all. And you didn't have to buy anything. I'd only buy, again, the shade cloth. I'd only buy it as a crisis mitigation thing. And I'd only put it where it's necessary. And I would put a put sunflowers, put sunflowers and amaranth in. Uh, put sorghum in. Plant sorghum sparsely through your whole garden. It grows straight up like a corn. Produces a grain head you can feed to birds or whatnot. If it's a good, it's a good nutrient trap. So even if you don't want to press it or use it for anything, just chop it up and put it back to the ground. And it's a big, tall, thin thing that produces, you could pattern it for shade. Sorghum, amaranth, um, and uh, sunflower. 
is what I would use as your annual shade uh, biomass predator pollinator attractors uh, in the interim while you establish something long-term. And I think one of your best trees you could consider for this would probably be mimosa because unlike locust, it's not thorny. It's really easy to start from seed. And with 800 square feet, you might need six of them. You just go out and buy two or three-year-old trees. Put them in the ground, and by the end of this season, they'll be ready to be established in the next year. Uh, could you do it with apple trees and stuff like that? Yeah, and you might include some food forestry in there. But for shade, for shade, these these leguminous trees in conjunction with annual gardening, they're just almost bang on perfect. With that, uh, we've wrapped up another week of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the Friday show. Uh, those of you that have been looking forward to the Nine Mile Farm updates, I'll try to get one done for you this weekend with some of the projects we're going to have going on here. It's been hard to do with travel and doing the Duck Chronicles and everything else, but I know I've heard from some of you that want in the MSB the Nine Mile Farm updates. We'll try to get one this week. If not this week, we'll get one for you next week. I'll, I'll commit to you that we'll get two done in February pretty much. Uh, with that, I want to say thank you, as always, for tuning into the Survival Podcast. Thank you for sharing the show with others. Thank you for your calls. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your words of encouragement. Thank you guys for doing good shit. Like I said earlier, the fact that you guys get out and do stuff, you guys really are my heroes. I mean, that's what it comes down to. This work is fulfilling because of the results that I see. Just like I talked about the guy that builds the wall and feels at the end of the day like I built that. When I hear I started a business, I did this, I paid off my debt. And I know that at least we, we touched you a little bit from here at TSP. That makes my work fulfilling. That's why if I ever get lucky and win the lottery with a found ticket because I don't play it, um, I will still be doing this show probably damn near until the day I die. It's my life's work because you guys kick ass. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution.